Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, October the 24th, 2022, a week till you know what, a week to Halloween. Uh, tonight, I'm celebrating, getting ready. I'm going to my local movie theater to watch Psycho, uh, Hitchcock's great 1960 movie. And to warm you up, if that's the right word for <laughs> Halloween, we're doing a special show focusing on a scary new book, The Favor, without a U, written by Nikki French, co-authored by my two guests today, um, Nikki Gerard and Sean French, uh, Phenomenal husband and wife team. They've sold, what, 15 million books, has it? Something like that, I think, yeah. We've lost count. You haven't really lost count. I'm sure you know exactly <laughs> how many books you've sold. So uh, who wants to start? Tell me about this new book, The Favor. It's just out in the U.S., or it's out this week in the U.S. It's going to be out in the U.K. early next year. I assume it will come with a U in the U in the U.K., the favor spelled O-U-R, but in the U.S., it's F-A-V-O-R. Tell me about this book. Um, the Katie Couric uh, media have included it in their best of Halloween this year. So I assume it's scary. <laughs> yeah, we hope so. I mean, the, I mean, uh, we have different kind of inspirations from all st different starting points for our, our books. And the idea of this one, we, for years, we talked about the idea of if some old friend comes and asks you for a favour, do you have to do it? You know, do you almost owe it to that friend to do it, whatever it is? And we, we just kicked it around as an idea. And we knew one day we'd find the right story. And it, it just came with this, we suddenly thought, found the right character. So what happens is, it's about this young woman, Jude, who's a, who's a young doctor and everything's going right in her life. You know, she's just, she's about, she's doing well in her, in her profession. She's about to get married. And then suddenly her first love, this boyfriend from her teenage years, who she hasn't seen for over 10 years, pops up uh, and just asks, asks her to do a favour. And she just feels, and for, for reasons I think the reader shouldn't, is not quite clear what, you know, she, you know, she says she'll do it. Because it, she just says, it's not illegal, is it? And he says, no, no, of course not. And uh, so she says, okay, she'll do this, she'll do this favour for him. And it's um, not a good idea. It's right, not Nikki. Do you think um do you think it's a coincidence that in terms of the favor being asked and done, it was the male asking and the woman doing the favor? Is it a coincidence? Well, in this particular book, it's not a coincidence. I mean, we have you asked earlier if it was scary, and we think it is scary but it's not scary kind of ghosts and ghouls and things that go bump in the night it's scary like there's a kind of intimate dread that we wanted to have running through it and the fact that it's the woman saying yes to the favor i feel that women probably say yes to things more than men say yes to things certainly in our <laughs> you mean I mean, yes so i think one of the points in a sense is how in this, in Jude's case, how even a perfect, apparently perfect life 
it's a bit like you know a loose thread in a sweater and just one tug and things just start coming apart so we wanted to show the kind of fragility of what of an apparently safe successful life is this a, a book do you think in a sense about bad luck i mean was um is the heroine if that's the right word of the book nikki was she unlucky to to have this request or is it somehow built into the universe I don't think it's about bad luck. I think, but I think it is about how you can take one bad decision that feels quite kind of small and kind of boundaried, and then life just, as Sean says, life unraveled. I mean, a lot of the time when we write books together as Nikki French, we're kind of obsessed with how a life that you can feel in control of. Um, and that can feel lucky and that can feel like it knows where it's going, it's on track, can very quickly go wrong. And that all of us are a few steps away from, from disaster, that we, we like to think that we know where we're going. But actually, one thing goes wrong and then, and then your world can collapse. And that's what we're interested in, when the kind of thin ice breaks and what you, you're in horrible dark waters and i think one of the things that we're interested in we, we, something we talk about a lot is if you look around you know sometimes when you look at your friends or people you know people seem you know certain people just seem fine but actually no everyone we feel has their own their secret or their weak point and one of the things about one of the 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 uh, revelations of the book is that Jude has a certain kind of secret. You know, why does she, why does she do this? Why does she do this reckless thing for for her for, for this old boyfriend and that? And it's because there's something, you know, she has something uh, nagging at her really. And and I think that's and I think that's something everyone can identify that we all have the thing we feel thing some secret or something we feel insecure something in our past we 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 feel not quite right about. And you yeah, also uh, uh, the the book. Um... Your, your publisher describes it as a, a, a twisty new standalone um, novel. Um, I like this definition, this word twisty. I even looked it up. Not arranged or moving in a straight, in a straight line. Not twisted, but twisty. Are you suggesting, um, are you suggesting uh, Nikki, that maybe we as a species or we as a contemporary people, we're all a bit twisty? Oh, surely we're all a bit twisty. Nobody's completely straight or completely straightforward. And, you know, I mean, in a way, that's what psychological thrillers do. They take, you know, they take surfaces and then they break through and everyone knows what it is to kind of act one way. And actually inside yourself, you're containing this whole world of kind of fear and doubt and jealousy and rage. We just keep it under, under the wraps most of the time. And in this book, you know, that in, in Jude's case, you just kind of break through into the kind of inner world. Um, yeah, we don't like, I don't think anyone is, no one is normal and no one is ordinary. Everyone contains this kind of hidden world of kind of unacceptable feelings, I think. What do you, what, what, and I'm throwing these questions out, please jump in one way or the other. <laughs> uh, what do you think of, particularly in America, the, the industry of self-help, this idea that, that all these problems can be confronted. We've done so many shows on psychoanalysis, on confronting one's inner demons. Are you suggesting that perhaps in an odd way we should almost celebrate these things and not consider them things that we want to, um, and I use this word carefully, exercise from ourselves? 
Well, can I? If I, think, okay. I mean, actually, if I can leave this book behind, we wrote a whole, we wrote a whole series about a that was a, a series of eight books, in which the kind of the detective was this, was a, was a psychoanalyst called Frieda Klein. Right. And in, way, and in that book, we really one thing we tried to make a connection with was was therapy and crime solving, and there is something about. I think we all. I mean, I think I think we I think we, we all need. I mean, so you can see why everyone's interested in self-help because we all have problems that we need solving. You know, we all the, our own mind is such. I mean, the, the greatest mystery, and it's something that we've explored in several of our books, is the human mind. The strange thing we carry around that we're part of but we don't understand and, and may, maybe that's one of the reasons why thrillers have such an enduring appeal and particularly now psychological thrillers they've become such a kind of flourishing genre because what they do is they they enable people to look at the things they're most scared of shine a light into dark corners and then they find a kind of a narrative or an order to put upon it. So you, there's a kind of healing process that often goes on with psychological thrillers. That they're both very scary, and there's a kind of consolation that goes along with that. Do you? Uh, you're talking to me from Hackney, Northeast London. I don't think there's a tube stop in Hackney, but lots of buses, lots of British Rail. You also live in East Anglia. Do you sometimes sit on the bus or the train or the, the underground and look at people over? the aisle and think, I wonder what their little secret is. I wonder well, where we, do, I think we do that all the time. I mean, I mean, for example, one of the things, <laughs> are, one of the obsessions is in a train or if we're sitting in a cafe or a restaurant, we, all, we, we, we always do think of looking around the restaurant and just trying to work out what's that, what, what, what are they talking about? What's their relationship? What's going on there? Behind the, you know, behind the facade. So, no, I, can I? Do you ever do threesomes? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I mean it, it sounds like a, a, an ideal marriage. I mean, everybody wants that kind of marriage. Two writers, two writers who work together, who go <laughs> no, out no, and no, imagine no. the world in um, as a great no, psychological not everyone, novel. Not, no, not everyone wants that kind of marriage. I mean, no. I think that if if your relationship is in any way rocky do not write together it is it is not a comfortable process I mean we're not kind of sweet no. people who sit there hand in hand agreeing with each other it's a struggle the process and there's nowhere to hide mm. so you know there when mm. it's going well it's wonderful it feels wonderful and it's wonderful to be able to share that and there are days or weeks when it's not going so well and then that feels quite stressful and you can't escape each other you know you can't escape your work because you're living with your work I mean I think lots of re actual relationships survive and depend on the fact that the couples have different you know they separate for a lot most of the day they have their own lives their own they work with different people and then they kind of meet at the end of the day so I, yeah, I think <laughs> I mean so the negative side I think lots of people would not be able to bear spending the whole of every day with their with their do you, how do you work, well, however, do you work I think in the same room how, how do you work do you work in this uh, when you write do you write in the same room no Absolutely never not. never never we cannot write in the same room and the few times we've tried it has been particularly terrible for both the writing and our relationship so no what we do is we spend weeks and months kind of preparing to write, finding the right idea, the right characters, the right voice. And only when we know we've got the same book in each other's heads do we separate out. And, and so when we're 
you know, I will work as far from Sean as I possibly can in my study. And one of us will write, say, the first chapter. We will email it to the other, who is then free to edit it, to add to it, to change it, to erase it and rewrite it. And then they will write the next chapter. And it's, so it's a very, I think some people think they have various ideas about how wonderful it must be writing together. So one thing is, people say, oh, it must be much quicker because there are two of you. And in some ways, it's much, I think it's a much slower business because we're just we're kind of sent, you know, we don't write at the same time and we're editing each other's work. And so, you know, and there is all that. So in a way, we have all the problems of individual writing and then having to, to collaborate. How did you yeah. decide? I mean, I, I, I was looking back. You don't have a website now, but you used to have one. And it was yeah. Nikki French, which is, of course, your pseudonym. One writer, two minds. That sounds rather twisty. Um, yeah. Rather twisty, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, a, I mean, the good side is, is that I read, I mean, I, I, cause some people think, oh, you, you must be so lucky that you have these two matching prose styles, you know, that, that fit together. And that's not the case. We're, when we write our own stuff separately, we have very different styles, very different imaginations. But the, I mean, the, the real surprise I think we discovered when we started writing our first book is somehow when we became this third writer, when we wrote writers Nikki French, we, it, we get freed to write in a way that's different from the way we write alone. And it's very, very kind of, it's very mysterious. But yeah, I'm, I'm I mean, very... like, this is true that kind of working together, something happens. There's some kind of, it's almost like a chemical reaction. So. We, you know, if it was a question of compromising, that would be that would just not work at all. It's not like that. It's like something takes fire often, and and that's why we've 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 continued doing it. You know, we've been doing it now for 20, 25 years. So when you <laughs> met, you couldn't be as. I mean, you you've been married since nineteen ninety. Um, so you had a period in the marriage when you weren't writing together. How did the marriage change? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we didn't have very long thought? before we started well, I think, writing together. But I think it's very important, even in the first bit we met, we were both journalists, so we were so used to both writing and we were showing, you know, if I wrote a, an article, I would always show it to Nikki and we'd talk about it before I sent it to anyone else and vice versa. And when we read books, we part, we, we always were discussing them. So it felt like a really natural next step. I mean, we natural Yeah, steps. but we did talk, we talked about the idea, of, well, you know, somehow could we collaborate? And so, but it did, I think the fact that suddenly we have spent now God, 25 years just enmeshed in each other's imagination. So that really, mm. I mean, it, it's so much a part of our relationship and, and the way we see the world and everything. You know. And it's, it's, it's very intimate. It's a very intimate thing to be doing together. And we often think that it's a way of exploring the world together, exploring our fears together, what we feel about things together. So it's become a way of seeing the world um, in each other's company. So it's been extraordinary, both for our marriage and for a kind of writing partnership. Yeah, you joked at first, uh, Nikki, that you've got four kids and 25 books. Um, yeah. Is there an element of jealousy? Do you think the books are jealous of the kids and vice versa? <laughs> well, or, or by, actually, or like vice versa, because I mean, it is, it's one of the funny things. When we, first, when we started writing our first book, we had four children under the age of eight. And so, of course, they weren't, you know, for years, they wouldn't, you know, I think gradually they've grown up and suddenly real, realised this is what their parents do in the day. And they've been and they read our books. And that's so that, I think that's been I mean, some I have to say there are a few of our books I wouldn't like my parents to have written, you know, yeah, because yeah. we go into kind of very uncomfortable areas. The, so. only, the only novel that none of them have 
read is Killing Me Softly, which is all about sexual obsession, because you definitely don't want to read. Were you requested they didn't read it? You asked them not to read it, which of course... No, 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 uh, do they think of the marriage as a sort of form of collaboration? Well, I first, I just think they, they're just so used to it. So I think they have, you know, they just, it was something. So I think it would have been really different if when they, if they were 15 years old and we thought we'd started writing together, then they'd have a before and after. But that's just been like the family business as if we were tailors or something like that, or, you know. There's nothing uh, wrong with yeah. Being a tailor, sure, and there's um, all my family's tailors. Oh, really? Well, great. Well, <laughs> not all of them, but lots of them. Yeah. Well, that, you know, you then that's what you're used to. But then, so I think it's just like the family business. It's like you know, they grew up in the shop. Uh, 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 Nikki, are you making yourselves vulnerable, g given that you have a history of writing twisty books about people's <laughs> most intimate secrets? Do you think one day you might write about yourselves? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Am I making myself vulnerable? Well, I mean, I think writing, you make yourself vulnerable when you write, because even if you, you know, writing is a very disclosing business. It's like a kind of, there's something very exposing about writing. I mean, there's something very exposing with Sean about writing together. You know, we're vulnerable to each other um, and we're kind of looking ridiculous in front of each other and we're kind of, kind of, being very trusting of each other in the act of writing. And would I write about, I mean, I have, I wrote a book about my father and his dementia, which was definitely kind of felt very- in a way you, hid, you hid behind that by, um, well, you, you wrote as a, a Nicky Gerard, I guess, rather than Nicky French on, on your father's mm -hmm. dementia and joy of dancing for the, the New Statesman. Do you think you could write nonfiction together? in the same oh. Nicky French style? Do you know, I think we... we well, I, no, because I we, think we I should don't... never say never. So, no. I, I mean, absolutely, maybe one day that could happen. <laughs> I mean, at the moment, I think that Nicky French is... What Nicky French does is write psychological thrillers, and that's, that's who she is. So maybe we'd have to have another name if we were going to write... Is she a she or a he? Or a she's yeah, very Nikki, much so, yeah. Nikki French is she. I mean, it's funny, it's funny that it just the it, the first book we wrote, which we wrote when we first we wrote the first book kind of in secret, just as like an experiment, and we, and it just the, the subject matter because it was about recovered memory, which happened overwhelmingly to women, so it felt like the 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 narrator of the first book had to be a woman. So almost without making a conscious choice. We, 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 so therefore, when we finished the book, it felt more like we were always going to give it one name. So it felt, well, if, it's, if this book is narrated by a woman, it'd be better to get, have a female name. So we almost then suddenly think, oh, we have become a woman, a female writer. And so, and Nikki French, I think, is a particularly female writer. Because yeah, we've, we've always written books with female leading characters. And how, I mean, Sean, how do you feel about that, given you're male? Yeah, well... <laughs> Do you know that I think the I you're think a hackney male, aren't you? And, exactly. and you <laughs> well, so that's not full, that's fully male. That's very kind of male, male adjacent. Uh, I, I mean, I think the th thing is the, the great pleasure. I mean, having both of us be, been in journalism, there is something about in fiction you really can go into become other people, go into other people's lives. And I think I've had this extra 
benefit of being able to write as a woman, you know, under this name of Nikki French. And it's yeah. been very, there's been, there's been, I, I must say, I have felt personally as a writer, very freed by that, to be going into that other world. It's funny looking at you two, and, and don't take this personally, you kind of look alike. Did you always look alike? Oh, yeah. Sean always says this. I <laughs> and do you think you look more have, alike have... now as Nikki French, given you've done all these books together? We've grown to look like each other. Well, I really... I have. Well, I have this theory that, that, that couples thoughts. always look like siblings. So maybe, but I, I think actually... much more shocked by this than I am. <laughs> I'm very happy to look like Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, maybe couples look like each other. I've just maybe got some new look, glasses, yeah, which maybe I think make glasses. me look a bit more like yeah. that. Do you, do you think you've learned to think, I mean, you've written all these books together and you don't only write books, you're also married and I assume you do other stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think you know each other as, as intimately as you possibly can? No. No, no. we're both... Yeah. I think one of the things that I felt really exciting about writing together is the more I write with Sean, the stranger Sean becomes to me in a way. And that says something wonderful about being human. Yeah. You never get to the end of them and you don't get to the end of yourself either. Mm. And if we started writing and it became predictable and I knew what he was going to write before he wrote it, um, then we should stop doing it. I mean, I think that the human mind, as Sean was saying earlier, is infinitely strange and we don't know, we, and in a way, one of the things our psychological thrillers are about is about mm. people kind of, because of what happens to them, they have to find things out about themselves, things that they never would have had to find out about themselves. And that's what I feel about writing with Sean or just writing in general is that you, you the kind of mind is like a labyrinth that you don't get to the end of. Also, well, I'd say it's something we have re returned to over and over again as a sort of running obsession is, you don't, you know, you don't need to be so frightened of the of a stranger picking on you. Although that can be frightening, it's you know, it's the person you're living with often, or someone in your family. You know, and I, I, I wonder. I was almost just thinking it now. That maybe that's partly come from us writing together. Because I think, although you know, here we are, we couldn't be closer. We're working together all the time. We're writing together. We're writing under the same persona together. And yet, I think you know, every time I get something that Nikki's written, I'm kind of surprised by it, and you know, I'm surprised by the weirdness of her, of her imagination. And I think there is. I mean, I think it's almost. We, I mean, I think you know. I feel we couldn't. We've spent 25 years in each other's heads in a way, and yet still we're we're mysterious to each other. Yeah, it's interesting. We did a show with Patrick House. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Uh, he's written a book, 19 Ways to Understand Consciousness. He's a sort of younger US version of Oliver Sacks. And he's mm -hmm. he'll still talks about this profound mystery of entering somebody else's consciousness. Do you think yeah. you've come close? I mean, is this something we'd even want to do if we ever inventive technology that allows us quite lit allowed us to quite literally get inside somebody else's head what, what do you think that no, would be I, think, I totally i mean that's absolutely right there's something almost frightening about how because we all we, we never see anyone experience anyone else's consciousness so how you know we don't know the way they see the world so there's that but one thing I, the more i got older is i think how much of a mystery one's own consciousness is one's own, you know, I, you know, sometimes, you know, knowing, I mean, you were talking earlier about self-help and psychoanalysis. 
most of us, do we, do we understand probably why we do the things we do, what kind of person we are ourselves, let alone everyone else? And the thought of being able to properly enter someone else's consciousness, that feels horrible mm. to me. You can have little moments <laughs> of connection where you feel you get glimpses, but everyone, everyone mm. needs their secret self. It, and it, that feels an inviolable right to have your secret self. But Nikki, isn't that what you as Nikki Gerard and Nikki French as writers, isn't that what you do? Isn't that why we read books or go to movies to get into somebody else's head? Exactly. Well, exactly. we do, we do yeah. yes, but we're not, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's fiction, isn't yeah, it? But also, it's that, I, I, I think that's absolutely right because fiction uh, can do the thing that life cannot do, which is you can move between consciousnesses and you get you you can actually see inside. And we and all lots of not just us, lots of writers, you play with that idea that sometimes when you're writing, you know, especially when we've written our, a book written in the first person, the person themselves just telling the story, then it's there the tension often is that they're in the position we're in. You just don't know what other people are really thinking. And sometimes we've done books where you can where what's frightening is you can suddenly see what someone else is really thinking. So I mean, it's absolutely. I think that's why I, that's one reason yeah. why art was is why we love art of different kinds. It yeah, gives so with, us that. Yeah. So with fiction, the walls of the self come down, and you can inhabit anyone's consciousness and see the world through all sorts of different points of view. Um, I mean, there's a thought of that happening in real life. Yeah. About, but on the other, there's, there's that like, magical thing if you read a novel from the 19th century and you've got you're inside the head of a you know this you have who, who in particular uh, do you um when you think of a, a 19th century novelist who gets into somebody's head who did it well oh well i mean that in a way you're just you you're just going to come up with the i mean this this the thing is i think there are different people who get into people's heads in a different way which is so i think that for example i mean someone like dickens is just he's he, what he's great is about at the the kind of madness of ordinary pe of, of people you know the kind of weirdness of the of the mind, whereas I mean but you know you're just one's just going to come up with the big names I mean, something like um, I think Tolstoy you know something like Anna Karenina has this unbelievable ability to empathise with every character, and you think how does he know how does he know you know even the bits in Anna Karenina where he suddenly becomes goes into the consciousness of a dog. You know, I think how do, he seems to know what a dog feels like, you know. So there's so he there's certain writers who have this amazing ability to almost empathize with everything. Well, think uh, that Sean, mean, Nicky, and Sean only mentioned men. Do women have I was gonna mention the Brontes, who are you know, the both Charlotte and Emily Bronte, they're ex extraordinary kind of visions that they bring of the world. I mean, the, you know, Wuthering Heights is just kind of fierce and strange. And then Jane Eyre is one of the great portraits of what it's like to be a woman and, and treated as a woman and have this kind of passionate voice bursting through. What about uh, uh, other, other media? I mentioned uh, Psycho. I'm going to see tonight, of course, Hitchcock in, in many ways invented psychological movies or certainly scary movies what do you think of rival forms do you like movies for example well well, oh, <laughs> well you you need you know, don't get me going on that my my dad was a film critic and i grew up i just grew up watching films oh what's his yeah. name uh, philip french he was yeah a, yeah yeah i remember very much 
Yeah, he was the film critic of the Observer in, in London. Yes. In England. When I when I first met Sean and his family, they talk about the world through films. It's like yeah. their language. It's quite extraordinary. So. So I think I mean I think you know I mean when you talk about influences, I think that you know I think movies were a big influence on our on, on you know certainly on the way I think of books as well. You know, but there's a certain kind of structure and and certain kind. I mean, yeah, where you mentioned Hitchcock, he's just I think it's impossible to think of suspense. You know, writing. If you're a writer, without have, you know, without Hitchcock being important. What can you do, Sean, that Hitchcock can't do as a writer? Oh, <laughs> that. Well, I think you have to be something. I mean, the. I mean, I think you can just. There, there are just things you can do in writing that that film can't. But then there are things that film well, you can't. Can, you know. Um, I mean, in writing, what you can do is exactly what we've just been talking about. You can get inside the consciousness mm -hmm. of another person. Mm. film you know, they have to be seeing things from the outside. Except I guess people like Bergman, they come pretty close yeah, to being inside. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, I mean, you know, Hitch, I mean, Hitchcock was, was a, you know, one is one of the greatest of all directors and he, and, uh, but he was, he's, <laughs> I mean, he, he, he's so, um, I mean, one of the things that's so great about him is he was, I mean, he's intense, he, he was able to use his own weird feelings towards sexuality and women and, just yeah. and, and turn them over and over again. Into these and he amazing. was really, I mean, you use the, the weird word, he was truly weird, right? Well, he said, I mean, one of the things he said, I mean, I think we quote him quite often, at least I quote him quite often. <laughs> I mean, so one of his maxims, which is very disturbing, it's both a very true maxim for, right, for thrillers, but also a very disturbing one. He said, he said the secret to a thriller is to make a beautiful woman suffer. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that sort of get that. In, and and there is did that in real life. Do you do that in your work? Well, we, we well, have you... really thought about it because there is a way in which there are lots of thrillers and we hope this doesn't include our thrillers, which almost kind of get off on torturing their female characters. And there's a kind of pornography of violence that can happen in a thriller. And we re what we've tried to be very careful about is that, that our our victims should never just be kind of objects, should mm. never just be clues. They should be given a kind of value and subjectivity as well. And so, and that, and we, with every time we write a new book, that's one of the things that we talk about before we set yeah. off. Having said that, is there, I, think if, I think one of our, there's a real danger in that you, cre you, tend, you create characters and you kind of love your characters. So there's a real danger where you want to kind of, get, well, let's let them have a nice time. And, it, and we, in, in the stories, I think mean, over and over again, is we, we create an ordinary person, usually an ordinary woman in a, having an ordinary life. And just give her as hard a time as possible, you know. And, and when things are, seem as bad as they can can get, make them make them worse. Because the drama is about how do people cope with when they when the, when suddenly ordinary life, you know, when the collapses and they have they find themselves in a different world and have yeah. to deal with that. Uh, final question. I mean, there's, there's so many interesting things here, but we've got to end. Um, there seems to be this sort of zeitgeist at the moment that everything's bad. I mean, we live. You're in England at the moment. They or Britain. The yeah. government's collapsed. Inflation, yeah. collapse of the pound, and so on and so forth. COVID, the war in Ukraine, and so on and so forth. Do, do you think that we're living in particularly bad, sad times, or is there something about us in the 2020s that has resulted in us being deeply deeply depressive about the world dark uh, uh, pessimistic 
Well, well, I can I give my answer first? I mean, I think I think it's really at times like this, it's really good to have a sense of history because there are, it is very scary, obviously, obviously, and it may be there's about to be a nuclear bomb dropped by Putin. So let's you know, one shouldn't let's not say everything's fine. I don't think he'd drop it on Hackney though. Well, maybe <laughs> it was what well, London is one of the things they've mentioned as a possible target. But but if you actually look back, at, you know, if you go back, you know. We're, we've got a, we've just got you know as we talk we've just got a new prime minister facing a terrible economic situation in in Britain. But when Churchill took, when he became prime minister, in you know at the beginning of the Second World War, if you read, he thought that it was about a fifty fifty chance that within three or four months it, that Britain would cease to exist as a country completely and be utterly destroyed. So you know I think we you know that we you know but our situation compared with that. Is, or if you go back to the if you go back to the English Civil War, about a quarter of the population of England died. You know that. You know, or the, the Black Death, which I think is even exactly, more. Exactly. So, so I mean, I think the kind of, there's been levels of you know. I think there is a way. We're, we're but I, I suspect that we may be more. We may we we haven't got this religious dread that people had about the end of the world coming. But I think we have. There's a kind of free-floating anxiety that we have now more. I think there is a free-floating anxiety in a kind of godless world. And there's a way in which we have such capacity to do great harm to each other now. I mean, think of, you know, nuclear weapons or think of climate change. I mean, it feels that it's being played out on an epic scale. So I I kind of hold on to the, is it Gramsci who said pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will? I think you kind of have to acknowledge that things terrible in the world at the moment and yet day to day there are lots of things to be very kind of optimistic and joyful about you have to hold those two those two feelings kind of together and you mentioned the death of god weber the great german sociologist talked about disenchantment do you think the kind of work you do is a form of re-enchanting the world well, do you know that's that's, a, God, that's that's such a huge question, and I mean, in some ways, I think we are part of the disenchantment because I feel that we're that the kind of psychological thrillers we and other people write is about one of the one of the anxieties we I think we we share with our readers is that feeling that there isn't a stable you know we write in a world where that there's a, no one's going to come in and rescue you in the you know even the mm. have detectives and you know it's you have to kind of face. The, the, you know, you, you know, you have to face these terrible things and find out. I mean, over and over again, we're interested in, you know, stress testing almost our main characters. You know, what, how, you know, when you, you know, when it comes down to it, when the chips are down, what are you willing to do in order to find the truth or to survive? And it's not going to be solved for you by a priest or a, you know, or imagine, you know, a great detective coming in. So, so I think I, I don't, I think. So it depends yeah. what disenchantment means, because there is a way in which. I think just the act of kind of writing fiction and reimagining the world and playing out what ifs, that's a kind of enchantment. That's a kind of, and also I hope that what we do in our novels is both look at scary things, but just, I, I think that our books are kind of shot through with the wonder of life as well. The wonder of a kind of godless universe. Well, the wonder of twistiness, I think, is reflected in uh, Nikki French's new book, The Favour. It's just out in the US. It's out next year in the UK. Congratulations. It's going to scare everyone. Be Just before, <laughs> uh, I was going to say Thanksgiving, just before, uh, just before um, Halloween. Uh, finally, we, you, you mentioned uh, Dickens and, um, uh, and Tolstoy and uh, Jane Eyre. 
the Brontes. Uh, any contemporary books that one of you or well, both of you would like? Well, like I said, I've just been reading some. Uh, I've been reading a whole lot of old thrillers at the moment, having a great and and the one particular recommendation I'd have is um, there's a writer, the American writer Dorothy B. Hughes, who's probably best known. She wrote she, she wrote in a lonely place, um, uh, which was made into a great movie with Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. But uh, the one the the book that that really struck me is a book she wrote talking about twistiness. In fact, with is she wrote a book called The Expendable Man. Which uh, people may, you know, in, in a, you know, if you you're thinking of twists, like if people who read Gone Girl, which has this famous twist in, I think that The Expendable Man has the best twist in any book I've ever read. So I'd really recommend that. And Nikki, and, uh, I'm going to recommend something that lots of people will have read already, which is Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, by Olga Tokarczuk. I think that's mm. how you pronounce it. Um, the Nobel that, Prize. Right. Yeah, and it's like an e a kind of feminist eco-noir miracle. It bowled me over when I read it. And it also it is a shows, crime novel. And it? it is a crime novel, yeah. And it shows that crime novels, they can do anything. They, they, they can be as bleak and dark and surreal and funny and as any other form of writing. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. 